This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I'm going to explain a little bit about why we're calling this the good life, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we'll talk about a vision of the good life today. So uh, let's read. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 as well because they're the context um, that sets up the Sermon on the Mount, and then we will uh, cover the, uh, the first uh, 12 verses today. So this is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. The words of uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to us today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A question that humans have asked throughout the generations is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And a a similar question that could be asked is, what is a meaningful life? What is a meaningful life? Yesterday we had a seminar about faith and work, and in it um, our guest speaker Bill Peel shared a stat with us and the statistic was that, seven, I believe this was of, of American citizens, 75% of people are looking for a more meaningful life. What is a meaningful life? Well, this is a question that didn't originate with our generation. Uh, this is a question that Greek philosophers uh, spoke of that, they, that occupied much of their time and thought was considering what is a meaningful life? Or, they would say, what is the good life? What is a good life? Or what is the good life? And they, uh, most Greek philosophers generally agreed that the good life uh, was consisted of something called eudaimonia. I know, I know, gesundheit. Eudaimonia. Now, I, st- I give you the word because you can look it up. It's a transliteration. It, it is actually a, a word, a transliteration of a Greek word that we use in English, eudaimonia. Um, but it's not one that we have a tight definition for that encompasses all that it means in English. Uh, words that would come close would kind of be happiness or well-being. That's probably a better term, well-being, that, that this was the ultimate goal in life. Now, different schools of Greek philosophy would say there are different ways to achieve the good life. There's different ways to achieve the, the goal of eudaimonia. 
Uh, but, but many of them said that was the goal. For instance, here's what Aristotle said. Aristotle said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life. The whole aim and end of human existence. So this kind of happiness, it's not the fleeting happiness. It's not a giddy moment like we might think of. So that's why the word uh, doesn't really translate well. But, but the idea of well-being, is the, it's the meaning of our existence, he said. Later he said this in another place. Good character is the indispensable condition and chief determinant of happiness. Itself the goal of all human doing. The end of all action, individual or collective, is the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So here he's saying the way you achieve the goal of life is by, uh, uh, is by character, and it is through living a life of good character that you can bring happiness to the most people. And that's the ultimate good life, is not only to experience this sort of well-being yourself, but to see that as many people as possible experience well-being. Aristotle taught that happiness came through developing and expressing virtues, mental virtues like wisdom and intelligence, but also character virtues, uh, things like generosity, courage, justice, that it was through the the expression of these virtues uh, that one could find well-being and ensure that others received well-being as well. There were other schools of philosophy. I'm only sharing one. There were others as well, but what they had in common is that they all sort of said that the good life uh, was made up of finding genuine well-being and seeing that others experience that as well. They laid out a philosophy of the good life, and today most of us don't think in philosophical categories. Uh, Most of us don't live uh, examined lives like this where we even consider what is the meaning of life and how does it um, how is it expressed and how do I know that I have it we just know 75 percent of Americans want it and are in search of it however we are all looking to experience the good life we just sort of define it in different ways Some people in our culture say that the good life is found in helping others. There would be some who say, I find the most meaning in life when I am helping others. Some people are seeking to achieve financial freedom, that the good life in their mind would be achieving um, wealth where there was no worry about financial security. Some would find the good life to be success in their job or success in their family. Some people would say true happiness, true well-being is if I could ever get to a place where I have inner peace, that that would be the goal of the good life, a sense of inner tranquility or a healthy body and a healthy emotional life. Or some might say the good life is made up of deep, meaningful friendships. But whether it's stated or not, every one of us have a philosophy about life and what is the good life. The Bible weighs in authoritatively and offers an idea about this as well. In the Old Testament, we see that God created humanity uh, in a state that we, that, that we could call, that the Bible calls shalom, that, that man was created to live in peace with God, with one another, with, uh, with our surroundings, 
that we were created with a sense of shalom. And shalom means more than peace. It means wholeness, well-being. It means human flourishing. So God created humanity to flourish. And when man sinned, that sense of shalom, that sense of peace and wholeness and well-being was broken. So one way at getting at the Bible's idea of the good life would be shalom. That would, be a, that would certainly be part of the idea of a good life. The Old Testament also uses the category of blessing as part of the good life, that the, the good life is the blessed life. That might be more what you would expect to hear at church rather than uh, Aristotle, but that would be a little bit more of what the, what the Bible would teach. It's a blessed life. And in the Old Testament, there are two different words that are used for blessed. Now, this is important because this is going to tie into the Sermon on the Mount. One idea of blessed is someone favored of God. So we say that that person is blessed. They have God's favor. The other idea that is used in a different Greek, I'm sorry, different Hebrew word in the Old Testament uh, is one to describe a state of being or sort of an observation about life, that this person is living a blessed life. Of course, it's because of the divine favor of God, but it's not really tied uh, to uh, expressly stating the divine favor of God. It's rather an observation about life. So here's an example. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this, blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here, this is that example. This is not saying if you read the Bible, you will find God's favor. It's rather saying, here's an observation about a way of being in life. The person who walks not listening and and participating with and partnering with those who are evil, but rather delights in God's word, delights in living under the rule of God, delights in living according to God's purposes, and meditates on God's word, that person's life is an example of a blessed life. So this is that second usage of blessed, which we, find in the, which we find in the passage for today. He's saying that living in delightful obedience to God's word, that's experiencing life the way it was meant to be lived. That is experiencing shalom. That is experiencing well-being. That is experiencing the good life. That is where you will find happiness in life, living in delightful obedience to God and his word. Now, all this comes together, and the reason I'm giving these two strains, sort of Greek philosophy and Old Testament theology, is they come together in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, here has, here's what we've heard from chapter 4, that Jesus has be, is now beginning his teaching ministry, and he's saying that in doing so, he is bringing the kingdom of God. So chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in the other Gospels, it often says the kingdom of God. Matthew often has the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Jews were hesitant to use the name of God, so he uses heaven as a euphemism, in essence, for God. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's the same. He's saying, turn, because God's rule and reign, that's the kingdom, God's rule and reign is right here, right now. So turn. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, that's good news, of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. So he says the kingdom of heaven is here. Everybody turn from sin and turn to the king. The rule of God is being expressed here. And then what does he do? He starts teaching what is the good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of God's reign? So he begins to teach and he begins to demonstrate that the kingdom is at hand because he as the king is now pushing back the forces of darkness, um, sickness, um, and, and disease or effects of the fall. And so he is showing the power of God in healing disease. He is showing the power of God over dark forces, over Satan and his minions. He is freeing people who are inhabited by demonic presence. What does he do? Why does he do this? Because it, it demonstrates the reign of God is here. So he shows up saying, here is the reign of God. Here is the kingdom of God right here, right now. And I'm demonstrating it through what I'm teaching you and through the actions of healing and deliverance. And then we get his first teaching, chapter 5. So the context coming into chapter 5 is God's rule, God's reign, that's a kingdom, God's rule and God's reign is here. And he's going to demonstrate it through teaching. And he begins by teaching these phrases, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. He goes through these nine blessing statements. We call them the Beatitudes because Beatitude means a blessing. So there are these nine Beatitudes um, of what life is like in the kingdom of God. What is life like under God's rule, under God's authority, in God's presence, as God's people, living under this rule of God, living in the realm of the kingdom of God? of God. These are not statements just like Psalm 1. These are not statements, if you do this, you will be blessed. This is not a statement that if you mourn, God will bless you. If you are poor in spirit, if you make your spirit poor, then you will earn the favor of God. That is not what is being said here. Rather, these are observations about a way of being in the world as kingdom citizens, as people related to Christ, as subjects to the king. They are descriptions of the blessed life, the meaningful life. These are Jesus' take on the good life in the kingdom of God. And while he doesn't use the word eudaimonia, uh, which would have been available to him, I trust, but while he does not use that word, or, or the writers did not use that in the Greek translation, he does use a similar term, or, the, or Matthew uses a similar term to translate what he would have said um, in Aramaic. The, the word translated blessed is often translated happy. Happy. So some translations translate this, happy are the poor in spirit. Um, that is a, a fairly common translation. Now it's not the sense of fleeting emotional sort of highs, but rather this sense of well-being. Jesus lived uh, in the first century as a Jewish rabbi, so obviously uh, he is is, uh, fulfilling the Old Testament teaching, but he also lived in the the Greco-Roman world, and this idea of describing 
what is the purpose and the meaning and the good life, that is common in his world as well. And these kind of two worlds collide in his description of the good life. It's an observation about a way of being in the world. So it's sometimes translated happy. Sometimes it's translated privileged. Privileged are the poor in spirit. When you start putting in some different words that are, are, are uh, in the same kind of range of translation, it begins to, to show us how upside down Jesus' kingdom is from the, the kingdom of the world. Privileged are those who mourn he says. Or some would say fortunate. Now that translation is not going to make it in here because fortune carries the idea of luck. But that's kind of an observation about someone's life such that they could even be envied. The blessed life is enviable. So the blessed life, enviable are the poor in spirit. One scholar said the way to express it best to capture the idea is congratulations. Congratulations to those who mourn. Congratulations to the merciful. Congratulations to the pure in heart. My favorite, and I wouldn't have believed this if it didn't come from a brilliant scholar, uh, R.T. France in writing about this, and he is a brilliant scholar, he said that the best translation he thinks is found in Australian vernacular or Australian slang. Good on ya. That's what he says, good on you. He says, good on you when you're poor in spirit. Good on you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Good on you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil about you. The good life in the kingdom of God is saying that the ultimate meaning in life is found in knowing the king and living under his rule and not in finding circumstances as perhaps we would desire. In other words, the good life is not tied to circumstances. That's what Jesus makes very clear here. They're tied to relationship with him. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Southern Baptist scholar Jonathan Pennington writes, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom, and how does one obtain and sustain it? And so Pennington translates, he says the best translation of blessed is flourishing. That really gets at it. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These first verses introduce us to the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The good life is experiencing God's kingdom rule now and in the age to come. It's now and ultimately and better in the age to come. And all this begins with seeing our need for God. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it's not just physical poverty that he has in view, though oftentimes uh, those who are are physically materially poor uh, find it much easier to be poor in spirit than the wealthy and the rich. But 
Poor in spirit is not speaking specifically of physical poverty in and of itself. Rather, it's speaking of a person that sees their need for God. We might even say is desperate for God. Uh, They may be poor materially. They may not be. But this this is the first statement about what life in the kingdom is like. It's for people who recognize they're desperate for God. I remember one time I was um, on a mission trip in Mexico, and we were uh, we'd gone across the border and were dis- went to a very poor area, and we were distributing uh, food. We had big bags of rice and beans, and we'd let people know know in this uh, in this area that we were going to meet out in this central area and give out food at a certain time. And many people came. They were they were all by our standards um, materially poor. And really by world standards, they were materially poor. No one was, it wasn't a famine, no one was starving to death, but it was a tremendous blessing to get a large bag of rice and a large bag of beans to feed your family. So we were giving all this food out, and people had lined up very, very, uh, very long line. This was like the first time I thought I got a picture of the poor and the poor in spirit. Um, so one of the guys had an idea. He said, you know, uh, there's no medical care to speak of for folks down here. We didn't have a doctor on the team. Um, and so he said, what about if we just offered to pray for people that are sick and injured and struggling and just ask for God to meet them? And so somebody got on the bullhorn and told this very long line, hey, okay, while you're waiting, if you are here sick and you, you uh, have a condition and you can, you've not been healed, you cannot, you're not getting better, uh, we'd like to uh, pray for you, and we're going to do that over here. And we watched numbers of people leave the food line, lose their place in line, might not get food because we could run out, they didn't know, lose their place in line and walk over here and stand in another line to be prayed for for healing. Because while they weren't starving to death and the food was a blessing, they were desperate for physical healing because they had no means of that. They were desperate for this God to somehow intervene and heal their bodies. They had no resources. They, had, they were poor materially, but they had some food. They had no means of physical healing. And that, in essence, demonstrated what it is to be poor in spirit. I need you, and I need you so much, God, I'll forsake an opportunity to get something over here that would be a real blessing so that I can just... Uh, have you do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is about recognizing our weaknesses, our inabilities, our limitations, our sins primarily. Poor in spirit means that I realize that I don't have what it takes to meet God, to walk with God. I love how the New English Bible translates this verse. This is how it translates it. Blessed are those who know their need of God. That's what poor in spirit is. And this is where Jesus teaches his, starts his entire teaching ministry. So his entire teaching ministry starts with kingdom. What does it mean to be in the kingdom? His beatitude statements reflect what is a blessed or a good life or a meaningful life. What does that look like? And his very first statement is, if you want to know what it's like to live in the kingdom, you must realize your utter inability to follow God, to know God, to please God on your own. You must recognize that you don't have the resources. You don't swagger into the kingdom of God. 
You come kneeling as a needy person before God, saying, God, I have nothing to offer. I need you. The poor in spirit. Listen, if you have arrived here today broken and weak, discouraged, burdened, yet aware that you need God, then Jesus would say, congratulations to you. We think there's something wrong with me. If I show up at church weak, burdened, needy, can't do it on my own, we think, hey, there's something wrong with me. Jesus says, that is the kingdom. That is the fundamental characteristic of life in the kingdom is that you recognize, I need God. I need God. Flourishing are those who see their need and rely on Jesus. You are fortunate, blessed to be envied. Good on you if you come here today and you say, I need God. Why are you blessed? Because yours is the kingdom. You're in the kingdom and it does not get any better than that. If you have come to Jesus Christ and you have recognized your need for his forgiveness, you have seen, I cannot make myself right with God, and you have turned from your sin, and you have believed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus as what pays for your sin and brings you forgiveness, and you have trusted him, you said, I can't make it on my own. I do not have the moral standard to make myself approved by God. I can't measure up to God's standard. If you have said that and you have trusted the grace that comes through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, then that's what brings us into the kingdom. It's that we receive the kingdom by faith. And if you have done that, if you've come to that, I can't make it. I need Jesus as my savior. I need him to forgive me and to give me new life. Then you're in the kingdom. See, that is the exact opposite of our culture, and that's the, the exact opposite of so much of religion. Even, Christ, even, I would say, false Christian religion. We want to feel self-confident. We want to feel self-sufficient. We want to feel self-made. And that is the kingdom of death. Jesus would say the kingdom of life is when you come under the true king and you start to see your need and you are delivered from the power of sin by Jesus, and you not only come into a relationship with Jesus by recognizing your need, but then you walk out your life with Jesus recognizing your need. Growth in the kingdom is further recognition of how much I need him. It never gets to where we need him less. (laughs) We we want to think that way. At some point, I can take the spiritual training wheels off. No, you can't. No, you can't. And that's not even a good illustration. It's not like he's pushing you along and now you ride. He's driving and you're hanging on for dear life on the back of the bike. That's, what, that's a better picture united to Christ. That's what it looks like. Poor in spirit. That grates against us. But it's beautiful. And it's the kingdom of God or those who are poor who receive Christ. He also says those who mourn are flourishing. Mourning's often associated with grieving loss, usually the death of a loved one. And in that instance, certainly God does comfort us. But given the context, it probably means something a little bit different here, though God comforts those who lose loved one. When we lose a loved one, God comforts us by the Spirit. But if you consider the context of how did Jesus start his teaching on the kingdom? Chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are not self-sufficient but see their need for God. 
It probably has to do with mourning, mourning our poor in spirit, mourning our sin. If we're repenting, it means that we are turning away from something our own way and turning to Jesus. Jesus launches the kingdom teaching that way. So when we are poor in spirit, we see our failures and sins and our need for God. We look to Christ and he comforts us. We, so we are poor in spirit. We see that we are needy. We mourn over our failures. And Jesus says, you shall be comforted. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, it comforts us. It strengthens us. As we mourn, some of us don't know the comfort of Christ in a deep, abiding way because we don't know what it is to mourn our sins, to mourn the sins of those we love, to mourn the sins in our culture and in our society. That's why the good life is the mourning life because the good life recognizes our failures and our weaknesses and runs to Christ for comfort. That's the good that is, I'm not talking about some morbid introspection where we are focused on how bad we are and we're just looking inward and just every day trying to feel worse and worse about our sin. That's not the good life. That's self-focus. This is being comforted by God. We'll be comforted by God in this day when we look at the gospel and we'll be comforted ultimately when we see him face to face. It's already and not yet. So if we are aware of our need, poor in spirit, if we mourn because of it, then it follows that we will be meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is certainly not a value in our culture. It doesn't mean in this case weakness, or being a weakling rather. It probably does mean weakness, but not a weakling. It means humility. Jesus, after all, was meek. Um, so it means in Jesus' in Jesus's life for sure that he had power, but he controlled it. It's a, it's a sense of power under self-control, under control. The humble will inherit the earth because we are heirs with Christ, but we don't have to grasp for our possession of that inheritance. Rather, we are given it. We are given the kingdom as a gift. We are to humbly exercise our kingdom dominion now as we live. See, right now we live as ambassadors for Christ with various callings in our life that go back to the very beginning when, when God told Adam and Eve to take dominion over the earth. And so we are to do that. We are to create. We are to manage. We are to steward. We are to guard uh, in all of our various callings, our work, our relationships. So we do have this sense of sort of inheriting the earth now. That is, we have responsibilities under God now. But the Bible says that we will ultimately come into our full calling in the new heavens and the new earth. Not because we took it, but because he gave it to us. So the meek are those who recognize their need for God, who aren't grasping with self-assertion, but are faithfully executing their callings in life and trusting God who gives the inheritance that we will inherit the earth, which has has some ramification now and has ultimate ramification in eternity. So all those who see our need and mourn our sin and walk in humility, we also are to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. It could be translated justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We receive, we come into the kingdom, we receive righteousness as a gift from Christ. Uh, We are declared righteous by faith, and then we spend the rest of our lives 
seeking more and more by the Holy Spirit's power to live out what he's already declared over us, an increased righteousness. We desire to be righteous in our lives, righteous in our relationships in the church. We long for a society that will be just to all and express complete righteousness. One day that will be the case. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is coming a day where there will be absolute righteousness, absolute justice in all believers uh, throughout the world as Jesus rules. That day is coming. And until that day, we are by grace to walk as citizens of his kingdom, walking, recognizing our need, receiving comfort for our sins and failures in the gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving his inheritance, walking meekly, uh, trusting Christ to provide for us, and longing and thirsting for this sort of righteousness that God is working out in our lives daily as we follow him and looking for the day when it comes in total. So today we are to work for a just society. We are to seek to work at godly relationships within our, with our fellow brothers and sisters. We are to grow in personal righteousness, but the ultimate fulfillment of that will be in the future. So poor in spirit, mourning, comforted by the gospel, me, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is who Christ makes us as people in his kingdom. This is the good life. This is living in his presence, fulfilling our calling today with an eye towards eternity. Kingdom living has one eye on today and one eye on eternity. Because without that balance, you won't be faithful to either. One eye on today, one eye on eternity. So we long for righteousness today. By God's grace, we repent and act for righteousness today. But our hope, our ultimate hope is in the righteousness that is to come. That day informs this day and empowers this day. So it's, it's, it's looking two ways. The next section points to the way we are in to be in this world as we, some of this as we interact with others. So it says, blessed be the merciful for they shall receive mercy. God has shown us incredible mercy incredible mercy. In our need, he came to us and brought us into his kingdom. And now we are to turn and show mercy to those who are weak as well, both believers and unbelievers. We're to express God's mercy to them just as we have tasted mercy. Mercy forgives. Mercy moves towards weakness. Mercy cares. Mercy crosses societal boundaries to show love and compassion to others. Mercy is Jesus talking to the woman at the well and giving her new life. Mercy is the good Samaritan crossing boundaries to care for another person. God's rule is a rule of mercy. We not only get in by his mercy, but we are to be changed by his mercy. We are to give the mercy we have received. One day we will see him face to face and receive ultimate mercy. will mean so much more to us than it does now when we see how bad off we really were when he rescued us. Flourishing in the kingdom is also living with a pure heart. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's two ways in the Sermon on the Mount that this idea of a pure heart works out. Uh, One idea is to be a person of integrity. That is, that righteousness is not just external obedience, but it's, it's an internal changed heart. So Jesus gets at this when he says, you've heard, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, it's not just about 
avoiding sleeping with somebody you're not married to. It's having a new heart. Because I'm telling you that if you've committed, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he's saying there must be internal and external matching. That's to be pure in heart. That is to be, have integrity. That, uh, that our external practice is motivated. Don't pray so that others will be impressed by you, he says. And don't do that because that, then your internal and your external aren't linked up. That's not pure in heart. Another way that pure in heart happens is it means single devotion to the king. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, you cannot serve God in money. You can only serve one God. So a pure heart is not only an integrated person that the external actions and the internal motivation align, but it's also a person that serves one God. Pure in heart means that we don't serve, try to serve money six days a week and God on Sundays, but it means that we serve God in all our week, in all of our lives. So he says the person, this is what kingdom life is like. It's by grace, seeing our need, being comforted by the gospel, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then experiencing God's change so more and more we are like him. To live that way is to see God. The more you see God, the more there is repentance and grace for change in our lives. So he ties this to seeing God Happy are those whose external obedience flows from a heart of love for God and neighbor. Happy are those who are pursuing God alone. That's what he's saying. Happy are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you seek to be reconciled to those you are at odds with, if you seek to help other people who have strained relationships be reconciled to one another, then you are flourishing. See, sometimes we think, man, I've got a broken relationship over here. And, and you're going and trying to reconcile, trying to repent, trying to own what you can, trying to, in Sermon on the Mount language, look at the log, deal with the log that is in your eye and not the speck in the other person's eye. So you're trying to get reconciled. You feel like, man, I'm such a, life is such a failure. This is so bad. Jesus says you're flourishing if you're trying to make peace. Those who make peace are flourishing. Um, it's a very powerful, powerful part of the Christian life. This is experiencing the good life. The good life is not, in this life, a trouble-free, conflict-free life. The good life is peacemaking and seeing God restore well-being to our relationships. Life in the kingdom is about relationships. It's about growing relationships of peace. Just as we are at peace with God, we are to be at peace with our brothers and sisters and help others to do the same. We are to foster peace in our culture. Uh, We live in the most divided, what seems like the most divided. I don't know if it's true. It's the perspective of the moment. It seems like a very divided culture. And so part of the Christian calling is going to be to go reflect Christ by making peace with those with whom we may differ. Peacemaking is stepping across lines. It's building bridges with those who are different. And when we make peace, we are imitating the king who came to lay down his life that we might be at peace with him. We're we're imitating our father and thus we are called sons and daughters of God. When we live in the kingdom, Jesus sets it up from the very beginning. Let me tell you this about the good life, he says at the very beginning. You guys who are in, he's speaking to his disciples, you're in. Now I need to let you know what you signed up for. Blessed are those when you are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds, all kinds of um, evil against you 
falsely. He's saying that if you stand for righteousness, if you identify with Jesus, you will be persecuted. Not for being a jerk, a a self-righteous jerk on social media. That's not persecution. That's being a self-righteous jerk on social media, and you probably deserved what we got when we do that. It's rather if you stand for true righteousness, if you're trying to make peace, if you're trying to walk as one who is poor in spirit, if you're living as one who mourns his or her own sins and is looking to be comforted by the gospel, if you're walking in humility and meekness, trusting God to walk faithfully in your callings to inherit the earth, if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you're trying to show mercy to those who don't deserve it, then you're persecuted. He's talking about if you look like Jesus and you're being persecuted, not for your political views or for something like this, but for your identification with Jesus, not a political party, or not a set of ideals. Jesus says when that happens, uh, he says rejoice, verse 12, and be glad. That's good life language. The good life, you can be glad when you are being persecuted for, that's the way they treated the prophets. The very people that spoke for God, that's how they got treated. So if you live for God, if you stand for righteousness, if you stand, if you, if you proclaim truth and stand for truth, there will be persecution. And now this one has a, has a now dimension, but is very clearly future-oriented. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So here, an eye on today and an eye on tomorrow, be rejoiced and be glad today, but it is a forward-looking. That part of kingdom good life will largely come, uh, largely in, in great reward in the future. Jesus says you have something to look forward to. Jesus launches his kingdom manifesto with these nine surprising statements of blessing. Most people go, wow, I, I wouldn't signed up for that kind. If that was the blessing in mind, I saw on TV, I could get a new car and be wealthy and be healed if I prayed a prayer and believed. And now you're telling me uh, I'll be persecuted. Yeah, that's what Jesus told them. This is what it's like to flourish, to live a meaningful life. As disciples, we are privileged to experience his kingdom presence. He says his comfort, his satisfaction. You will be satisfied if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. We experience satisfaction. We experience mercy. Being in the kingdom means having a vision of God. What is greater than that? The pure in heart will see God, both in this life and in an increasing way through the Scripture and by the Spirit, and one day face to face. That is the good life to see, to know, to connect with your Creator, to experience the fatherhood of God. Have you thought about that? That is the good life. Everyone, in essence, is living an orphaned life spiritually, outside of relationship with the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. And he says here, blessed are the peacemakers, if you are in the kingdom and I am making you a peacemaker, you should be called the sons of God. If you're called the sons of God, that means God is your Father. It's speaking of encountering the fatherhood of God. Joy today, rejoicing today, and eternity. This is the kingdom manifesto that Jesus starts with. This is his description of a way of experiencing him and of being in the world that is our calling, that is our purpose, that is life the way it's supposed to be lived in a dark and broken world. This is what we are to aspire to. There's an implication of an invitation to live this kind of a way. And to expect this kind of a life and to have faith for the greatness of the king. 
to live in us and walk us through our lives. They are, they're an Im- implicit invitation to the way of Jesus, to the kingdom of God. And it all starts with, blessed are those who know their need of God. That's where it starts. The rest of the passage will never leave that. Every time, that's very helpful because as you read through this and feel convicted, it's just, you just go, okay, that's right. I feel very convicted by that scripture about lust, about anger, about my words about my anxieties and my fears. I feel very convicted about the scripture. Great, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're experiencing the kingdom vibe in that moment. The kingdom experience. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.